0: All right, well, afternoon all. Uh, we have arrived, you may be happy to learn, at our final psalm of disorientation today. So if you've been in the mud of disorientation, this is our last. But I, I hope, uh, and for those of you who, who may have not heard all of them, disorientation of those psalms uh, that deal with periods of turmoil, or hopelessness, confusion, despair. And I do hope that you, like me, have been encouraged to learn that this kind of language isn't unknown to god right it's not alien to god Um, we can bring this kind of language into his presence and trust him with even our darkest experiences and our thoughts i think that these psalms at least for me have reminded me to be honest with god and honest with one another to speak frankly and openly and to acknowledge that our lives do contain disorientation uh, and that god is our companion even on the darkest roads.
1: So today's psalm
0: is a psalm of disorientation at the beginning, uh, but it moves towards something much more like new orientation at the end. So you might think of it as a, a psalm that is about joy that breaks through despair. I think that this psalm is deeply instructive. As we read along with the psalmist, we see their old anxieties and struggles and watch as they encounter a new revelation a new way of seeing the world that they inhabit. So we're looking at Psalm 73, if you've got it in front of you on a phone or uh, in a paper book called the Bible. Um, I think in this Psalm, maybe of all the Psalms, I'm struck by just how familiar and human these Psalms are. In a sermon that I gave years ago, I described um, this process of looking behind me and seeing, and I was kind of imagining, these long, taut cords of steel that were tied to something like a heavy burden. And I couldn't cut the ties, but I remember thinking that that was the first time that I could see them, right? I could look back and know at least that they were there. And that, of course, is a vital step in moving forward, right? And I think that our psalm today is a beautiful demonstration of, of seeing the things in our life that have become disoriented and then discovering a way forward. So in many ways, this psalm is an act of faith. So this is verse 1. And I'll, I'll, I'll read some of but not all of this, and I'll leave some of them there to kind of skip through. This is a psalm of Asaph, who was a Levite. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. I said to Renee I was gonna preach just on this line, but I thought that I should get through the whole of the psalm. Um, But there is so much in this one opening. Verse one opens with a statement of faith, right? A belief in God's goodness. And the psalmist is speaking importantly as an Israelite. Surely God is good according to what we've been taught in our traditions from our Torah. In this psalm, the word surely Um, which is a strange word in Hebrew, is it's in Psalm 49 as well. And in both times, it's something expressed when the rest of the context shows an utterly different reality. Um, Walter Brueggemann calls it a counter-opinion to what had become the consensus. That is, well, maybe God isn't, right? Maybe God isn't good to Israel. Just look at what's going on. Across Psalm 73, we're going to see the psalmist make the case in many ways. Um, that The old claims that the Israelites made, the old truths, the old stories, endure and they continue to speak in the cynical world in which this psalmist was living. Our speaker decides to offer up their own experience to substantiate this claim. And I think that we can read this opening line as the start and the end of the psalm. It's the premise, it's the conclusion. It's the argument and it's the answer. Surely God is good could be read like, surely God is good? It comes before the discussion of their experience, of their doubt, of their anguish. It's a statement in that way of kind of, of being hopeful. Surely God is good. But by the end of the psalm, it's a conclusion. And then you might say something like, surely God is good after the experience of hurt and doubt and anguish have been expressed, after the language of resentment and hostility have been said, God is good, becomes a statement of assurance. It is as if the speaker of the psalm is saying right at this very opening, come, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you how I learned to make a statement like this. How I could say that God is good in a world that is full of hurt and jealousy and unfairness. Um, And I'm I'm, I'm glad that Dave Wakeling is in here because he would normally pull me up on this, but I didn't want to talk about this pure in heart line because I I don't like it as much. It's trickier. Um, Pure in heart. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 verse 8, right, in the Beatitudes, it's the pure in heart who will see God. And I, I really struggled with this line, if only because I rarely considered myself pure, Uh, or pure in heart, at least. And so my thought was, maybe this promise isn't for me. The psalm begins by things not going well for the psalmist. And I think that the mistake that's easy to make, and I think a mistake that maybe I make all the time, and maybe you make all the time, is to assume that God's goodness is experienced only as the absence of bad things happening, right? God is good as long as stuff is good. If things go poorly, as they often do, the answer to the question, why do things go badly for me, or why do things go badly for Israel, might be the answer, because God's not good to me, because I'm not pure in heart. Um, And I have this kind of complex, but also lovely quote that I'm going to explain to you. It's a um, theologian philosopher, Martin Buber, who provides this really helpful clarification. The questioner had drawn from the fact that things go ill with Israel, the conclusion that therefore God is not good to Israel. But only one who is not pure in heart draws such a conclusion. One who is pure in heart, one who becomes pure in heart, cannot draw that conclusion, for he experiences that God is good to him. But this does not mean that God rewards him with his goodness. It means rather that God's goodness is revealed to him who is pure in heart. He experiences this goodness. Insofar as Israel is pure in heart, becomes pure in heart, it experiences God's goodness. The state of the heart determines whether a man or a woman lives in the truth, in which God's goodness is experienced, or in the semblance of truth, where the fact that it goes ill with him is confused with the illusion that God is not good to him. Now that is sticky, and I'm aware of that. I I would love to spend a whole lot of time reflecting on this, but let me just say briefly, What was so beautiful to me in this reflection is the way that the pure in heart is not a group, right? It's not a group of people that you either belong to or don't. It is a state of the heart. Those dark moments of our lives, I think, reveal to us precisely what the state of our heart is. Do we experience hardship as a confirmation that God is not good? Or do we, like the Psalms that we've been reading the last few weeks, cry out to God in the midst of turmoil and distress. And Martin Buber, and I think, of course, Jesus, also is a bit generous here. He offers a gracious space for the fact that maybe we're just becoming pure. As we become more like Jesus, we see more of God's goodness in our world and in our lives, right? We don't experience no no, no trouble, right? This is not about having a trouble-free life. Instead, what we have is the companionship of God, no matter what is happening. His nearness, even in times of disorientation. And I think that there is a promise implicit in this, that as our hearts are surer of God's goodness, we're better companions to one another as well. We're less obsessed with the idea that God's obligation is to make our lives better, and we're more assured that our obligation is to promote and pursue His loving way for other people. All right, the next passage. So I'm not gonna read, oh, that's, that's cut off weirdly. This is, this is why I don't use Keynote, Max, honestly, okay. For those at home, I've lost half of my passage, but that's okay. Um, I'll read this really quickly. But as for me, my feet have almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. So verses 2 to 14 are this statement of a problem, right? Verse 2 opens with this thing, but as for me, right? Do you remember what verse 1 was? Surely God is good, but as for me... At the opening of verse 2, it shows that the speaker has some troubles with the claims of God, God's goodness. Their experience does not mesh with the tradition. These verses sound a lot like confession. It begins with the admission of their envy. It describes their sin of not trusting God. And it obsesses over the flourishing, right, the success and wealth of other people. I find this too close to the bone. Uh, admittedly Um, because what the psalmist is really saying is look at those affluent cynical successful i'm going to say people given that this is recorded Um, the psalm is dominated by them right they have no struggles they have no burdens they always seem to win for the psalmist their obsession leads them to wonder whether god is good at all or maybe just god is irrelevant what's the point when the powerful always seem to win The psalmist, and I'm really sympathetic to this conclusion, is deeply uncomfortable with the fact that maybe greed does work for some people. Look at our own world. I think that people who live like this often do seem to flourish. And I can find myself obsessing over their downfall and maybe patently angry at God for not doing something about it. And also we get a surely here in verse 13, a second time. So on the first, we had this idea of surely God is good. Surely there is hope. And here, the psalmist begins to suspect that any kind of purity of heart is useless. Surely in vain, I have kept my heart pure. It's that doubt, right, that sticks in your gut. Maybe the alternative way actually does work indeed it seems to work better than the way of israel but then we have verses 15 and 16. if i had spoken out like that i would have betrayed your children when i tried to understand all of this it troubled me deeply this is a moment of dawning realization i think of that moment in the parable of the lost son do you guys know this the where jesus is describing the younger brother who was run off with his father's inheritance. And there's this beautiful line in in Jesus' story where he says he's coming to his senses. And he comes to his senses where? It's in the pigsty, surrounded by the swill, starving, surrounded by pigs. He comes to his senses. The line in Psalm 73 is, I would have betrayed your children. Psalm 73, the sobering moment, comes to a member of a community who must act and realizes that they need to act responsibly because they belong to a community. That is where, for me, this is a psalm of the kingdom. There is a community of hope to which I belong, to which we belong. That those other people, they're not my people. Their priorities are not my priorities. Attractive as it might seem to me, I can't live that way, at least not with integrity. There are times where the choice to pursue success or wealth or personal happiness or whatever it might be, conflicted with a deeper conviction that comes with my membership in the community of believers. And I wonder whether whether you guys have had this moment. And if we get the time, and I hope we do, that's the question that I'm going to ask at the end. Whether there's been a moment where you flirted with the possibility of just doing that thing, even for a little while, yearning for what they have, and that yearning was real and potent and strong. I think that this psalm is a psalm for those of us who have felt that way, who have felt inclined just maybe to do the different thing, the alternative thing, the easier seemingly thing. Okay, verse 17. This is the decisive moment. Till or until, I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. So this is the moment of action. It's decisive, it's brief, it's frustrating because I wanted to know what went on in their mind, but we don't learn. We just get this till. The truth of God's claim on their life suddenly, in a moment, caused them to see more clearly. I think of this moment as that same moment uh, in Psalm 139 where the psalmist remembers that God is with him and he can't get away. You know, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? I don't think that a moment like this is the same for any of us. So maybe it doesn't matter what the psalmist thought. God knows you and me and he knows what motivates us and he knows what irks us and grieves us. He knows how to speak in the spirit and that still small voice. And I wonder if if you have faced moments where the option was to pursue a life that was outside of God's purposes, what drew you back? How did God speak, or through whom, or through what did God speak? What was said? Here, it's just entering the sanctuary of God. So the next lines: Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin, How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. I think I've called this refocusing faith, yeah. Can you see how entirely in contrast this is to that preceding passage? Verse 18 begins, if you notice, with our third, surely. Um, If the first was hope in God's goodness, and the second was the moment of doubt, then this third is a a new confidence, a realisation that, no, the alternative way, that way that seems better, that ends poorly. To live apart from God, to pursue your own selfish ends, to live for your own pleasure. The psalmist says, well, this kind of life is full of slippery places, and ruin and destruction and terror. It is an unreal dream. I mean, this is a profound statement of faith, right? There are other ways to live, yes, and they look often more appealing than my own, but I know that my life apart from God is no life at all. Verses 21 and 22 here are a moment of painful reflection. I think that I I would just rephrase this as the simple expression of, ah, sorry God, I was an idiot, uh, (laughs) right? My obsession with wealth or happiness or security or whatever it was, it led me to jeopardize the one relationship that I know endures, the one thing that is sure. This is the moment of what was I thinking? And I I feel deeply with the psalmist here. I think usually I say this after I've made the mistake as opposed to preemptively. What was I thinking? All right. And then the final verses. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And if there's nothing I desire besides you, my flesh And my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. So this is the end of the psalm. In verses 23 to 28, I think that we arrive at the kind of faith that brings us back to that moment in verse 1 where the psalmist says, Surely God is good. And here it is, sure. This yet I, yet I am, is a parallel to that moment in verse 2 where the psalmist said, As for me. Do you remember that? As for me, this doesn't seem true. But now we have the yet I. The me in verse 2 As for me, maybe I'll leave community. The yet I, in verse 23, they want to come back into community. This is, I think, the perfect symmetry of the Christian life. There's a version of me that yearns to be free of God and his expectations and to pursue my selfish path. And there is a better version of me that yearns to know his presence anew each day. And in verse 23, the speaker, I think, Figures out what is the most foundational and true thing, where he says, I am always with you. I've got another line from Martin Buber again here. He says this God has taken his right hand as a father. More precisely, as in the dark, a father takes his little son by the hand, certainly in order to lead him, but primarily in order to make present to him in the warm touch of coursing blood the fact that he, the father, is continually with him. In coming to God, the psalmist discovers that God was and already is and always will be with him. Despite feeling that God's absence was real, the truth that the psalmist learns is that despite his struggle, God was always his companion. I love this idea of God taking the psalmist by the hand, right? It's not merely to guide him as we often think, But it's just to remind him that he is near. I suspect that many of us need this kind of revelation in those deep moments of disorientation. In verse 25 and 26, the speaker has a a new commitment. After they've been running away, they've come to their senses, right? They say this, there's none in heaven, no other God. There's none on earth, there's no attractive alternative that has any power. There's no relief other than yours. I think this is a moment of genuine delight. I also think it's kind of that moment where you go, oh, thank goodness I figured that out. God's my companion and strength. It was that moment that he spent in God's presence that helped the psalmist to see clearly. And I think here we come back to that very beginning idea of pure in heart. To those who draw near to God, the good news is made known. The pure in heart will know God. They will know that he is near, even along dark paths. You remember that line out of Psalm 23? Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You are my companion. So here we have the last lines, verses 27 and 28. And there's the final conclusion that is drawn. People who are not near to God will not last. This could be expressed just like this. If you choose to be your own God, you'll end up in ruin. By the time we get to verse 28, the psalmist is utterly convinced of their companionship with God, right? This is an amazing movement from that opening statement of hope to the final moment of assurance. The nearness of the speaker contrasts with the distance of those people that he was jealous of, right, at the beginning, And I think I would add one thing to this psalm, which the psalmist couldn't possibly have known, which is for those of us who know the revelation of Christ, I think that our heart breaks for people who are distant from God. For those of us who yearn to live like Jesus, I think that those distant people can be made near through our love for them. The pure in heart are those who draw near to God. And I would add that the pure in heart are those who also yearn to draw others near in acts of love and grace. So Psalm 73 is a psalm of experience. It's a testimony from someone who ventured away and discovered afresh how pleasing it is to be close to God. It is a story of a heart that was seduced and then healed, a heart that was isolated but then restored, and it provides clues to us of the ways that we go into disorientation, but also maybe the ways that we can come out In verse 17 that moment of clarity and i don't have it up here because it's the bit that's kind of unknown to us that till i came into god's presence i think that moment of coming to our senses is something that many of us have experienced i think it's a holy moment in our lives it's a moment before god where we quiet our worries and our self-obsession for long enough to remember that it's God who sustains us and it's God who provides and it's God who is near to us. Psalm 73 is a beautiful picture of the ways that our hearts wander and the journey back to a father that has never left us. It reminds us that the movement from disorientation into new orientation involves coming to God and learning that he is with us. And of course, I couldn't help but think of the name Emmanuel, right? God with us. Because for those of us who trust in the revelation of Christ, we remember that God actually came and lived among us and left his spirit. And so here we recall those last words of Matthew where Jesus, echoing his father's words, commissioning his disciples and us too, reminds us of the eternal hope we have. He says this, And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. And I think that this is our hope. This is the hope of our new orientation.